Welcome, one and all, to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. We are... We're almost two weeks into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the deeper you dig into what Russia is doing over there, the worse it gets. It's like a nesting doll of bad. So far, more than 1.5 million Ukrainian refugees have fled the country. It would be more, but Russia refuses to abide by their own announced ceasefires and safe corridors to allow civilians to escape. Repeatedly over the weekend, Russian troops continued to pummel cities with rockets even after the announcement of corridors. It's like Putin's competing in the evil Olympics against himself. And because he's Russian, you know he's juicing. <laughs> now, Putin... Putin says he's offering humanitarian corridors for real this time, but only for Ukrainians to flee to Russia. Well, that's not helpful. <laughs> that's like having a safety sign that says, in case of fire, jump into a pit of snakes. <laughs> it turns out that Ukrainian resistance has been much fiercer than Putin ever dreamed. So instead of trying to achieve... <laughs> Absolutely. So instead of trying to achieve a military victory, the Russians are attacking civilian infrastructure in an attempt to make Ukrainians survive with all electricity, water, food, medical help, and means of subsistence in what many are calling an effort to break Ukrainian morale. Break the morale? Hasn't Putin seen how tough these Ukrainians are? This weekend, a man and a woman who are serving together in the resistance took a break from fighting to get married on the front lines. It's, it's like a wedding in Texas, but with slightly fewer guns. <laughs> although, although I must say, I must say, huge faux pas. Everyone knows you're not supposed to wear the same color camo as the bride. <laughs> where is she? Where, where is she? I'll tell you what, I will never complain about a destination wedding again. <laughs> Russia has been hit with a series of crippling sanctions, and it looks like there's more to come, because the U.S. and its European allies are now discussing banning imports of Russian oil. Take that, Putin. We're not gonna buy our gas from a war criminal. We're gonna buy it from the good guys. Saudi Arabia. <laughs> but it's gonna cost. Since the invasion, oil prices have skyrocketed. Today, the average gas price in America hit an all-time record high of over $4 per gallon. Okay, that stings, but a clean conscience is worth a buck or two. I'm willing to pay... It's important. It's important. I'm willing to pay $4 a gallon. Hell, I'll pay $15 a gallon because I drive a Tesla. Right now, people all over the world are trying to find uh, inventive ways to help ordinary Ukrainians. For instance, Etsy buyers are urging people to help Ukrainians by buying digital items such as fonts, patterns, downloadable photographs, and artwork. So now you can order a lovely motivational needlepoint pattern that reads, live, laugh, Russian warship, go <laughs> yourself. <laughs> if you're... Gets you. Gets you right there. Yes, you're right there. If you're looking for more conventional ways to donate to the people in Ukraine, head over to at Colbert Late Show on Twitter. We've pinned a list of organizations who are helping refugees on the ground. Now, despite...
Despite increasing global pressure, Putin isn't backing down. This weekend, he lashed out, declaring the sanction imposed by Western nations are akin to a declaration of war. Putin gave these comments while speaking to a group of Aeroflot flight attendants who, by the looks of it, were thrilled to be there. <laughs> Never a good sign when the flight attendants give you the same face they give the guy clipping his toenails in Economy Plus. <laughs> of course, Russian flight attendants know all about no-fly zones thanks to sanctions against Russian airlines. Aeroflot now only flies to one foreign airport, Minsk, the capital of Belarus. So Russian travel agents had to cut back to a single poster, visit Belarus, sky is color of delicious cigarettes. <laughs> it seems like... So Belarusians here tonight. Seems like the only way this humanitarian crisis can end is if Putin is removed from office. <laughs> when is he up? 24? He's up for re-election in 2024, but he still hasn't decided how much he's going to win by. <laughs> and he's doing everything possible to make sure the Russian people don't turn on him. For instance, one reporter in Russia says police in Moscow appear to be stopping civilians and demanding to see their phones in order to screen their photos and text messages. It says here in text messages, it says, you up. <laughs> Is short for Ukraine uprising. Seize him! The reporter... It was a flip phone, in case you're wondering, it's a flip phone. <laughs> the reporter... <laughs> Thank you, John. That was great. Thank you. The reporter saw police officers demanding phones from people near Detsky Mir, a popular Russian toy store. I feel so bad for those Russian people. They just wanted to go and buy Russia's hottest toy, Mr. Actual Potato. <laughs> Is... Is potato. <laughs> this crackdown comes in the wake of a new law that would punish anyone who shares false information about the war in Ukraine with up to 15 years in prison. Of course, in this case, false is defined as anything other than what Putin wants you to say. For instance, it is now a crime to simply call the war a war. Instead, they want you to use the Kremlin's term, special military operation. And if you don't want to call it that, the Kremlin has a few other approved options. Special bang-bang time, <laughs> awkward family reunion, <laughs> National Lampoon's Eastern European vacation, <laughs> and Benefer. <laughs> Evidently... Sure, why not? Evidently, the special military operation against information is working better than the real one. Some Ukrainians find that their relatives back in Russia refuse to believe it's an actual war. The Russian people are so used to accepting the Kremlin's lies that their most popular margarine is, you must believe it is butter. <laughs> I got a great show for you tonight. Coming up, Anderson Cooper. Just in just a moment, we'll be talking to Broadway superstore Sutton Foster. We'll be out here from oh, The yeah. Music Man. Yeah, an, an amazing show. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Another thing I cannot recommend highly enough is that if you're looking for some way to help the people in Ukraine, I just want to say again, in case you just joined the show, go to at Colbert Late Show. 
We've got a list of charities out there that are on the ground in Ukraine and in the neighboring countries helping the refugees. Give what you can. We need to do what we can. Thanks so much. Heartbreaking, but you're not powerless. Yeah, absolutely. Folks, my first guest tonight is the anchor of CNN's Anderson Cooper 360 and a correspondent for 60 Minutes. He joins us now from Ukraine, where he's covering the Russian invasion. Please welcome Anderson Cooper. Anderson. Hey, thank you. Anderson, where are you in Ukraine? Uh, I am in a hotel room in Lviv, Ukraine, which is in the far west of the country, uh, relatively close to the Polish border. And it's sort of the transit point where uh, a lot of families, women and children who are fleeing Kiev, who are fleeing Kharkiv or Odessa or anybody who can get out, usually they end up coming to Lviv, the train station. There are about 50,000 people arriving every day at the train station. They're hoping to get further points further west, Poland, Romania, Germany, anywhere. So um, is it a relatively safe place right now? It is, yeah. I mean, it, the war hasn't come in the same way that it is in, in Kyiv. There there's not rockets here landing. Air raid sirens go off every now and then. Um, but a lot of people, frankly, just kind of ignore them at this stage, although I was in a children's hospital where every day they have to take the kids every time the air raid siren goes off. They have to unplug kids who are, you know, have very severe cancers, uh, take them off their treatment, bring them down to the bomb shelter, wait till the all clear sign. So, but yeah, it's relatively safe uh, at this point. Um, for 12 days, we've been watching the Ukrainians bravely resisting the invasion of the Russian troops. Um, what are the latest updates from the actual battlefront? For instance, wh where is that 40 mile uh, Convoy. Column of tanks that we heard so much about north of Kiev. What's happened to that? Yeah, it's, uh, they believe it's probably a resupply convoy. So there may be tanks and armored vehicles, but also, you know, gas trucks and, and the like. That still seems to be stalled. And uh, we don't have a lot of details on exactly why. But essentially, the, the Russian plan, it seems, had been to try to seize the airport in Kiev early on, kind of a lightning strike. Uh, that was one of their first targets. And with that, if they had that airfield, they could then just fly in huge amounts of troops and supplies. They were not able to do that. They have not been able to, to fly those supplies in. So that's what that column, it's believed, was sort of heading down to be a resupply column. But it's been stalled. It's probably been attacked uh, repeatedly at various points by Ukrainian forces. There's traffic jams, and they haven't been able to really arrive and kind of encircle Kyiv as they, they may want to. Well, the, the resistance and the courage of the Ukrainian people has been inspiring to people all over the world, especially yeah. those who believe in the, uh, the future of democracy as the, the best path for humanity and not the boot of autocracy. But there is an attack coming from all sides of this country. Where is the heaviest fighting right now? Right now, I mean, it's it's all over. I mean, Kharkiv has been, uh, which is the second largest city, which is all the way in the east, that has been hit very hard. Uh, Kiev has, there's been shelling, obviously, fighting in and around, in the communities around residential areas. We've seen, you know, terrible, terrible bombardments of residential areas. Um, I mean, the, the images, the sounds of people screaming, uh, finding children slaughtered in the streets is, uh, hard to ever forget. 
There's a lot of fighting, very intense in the south. That's a, a big push for the Russians. They want to try to seize Odessa. Uh, they've already seized uh, um, a town called Kherson, uh, um, which is a smaller town. But the, Odessa is the target in the south, and um, you know it's it it is unlike the, certainly whatever the Russian plan was. The reality of the attack of the strength of the Ukrainian defense forces and the volunteers has been extraordinary and clearly not what Russia expected. And so they are clearly revising whatever battle plan they may have had. Uh, that has certainly seemed to have gone out the window now. And the Russians are trying to, you know, it seems, according to U.S. officials, that they are just going to now do what they did in perhaps Aleppo or in Grozny, which is just lay waste to cities, lay waste to residential areas to break the back of the Ukrainian people. That is the attempt. But I got to say, I, I've been in, I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years and I've been in a lot of countries of war. I have never seen a population in a country that has been invaded as unified in their complete loathing of Russia, in this case, of the, of the attacker and their just to a man and woman and child, their desire to resist this, whatever may come, resist in the short term. And if there is an occupation because of the overwhelming force of Russians to resist under any kind of occupation, I've never seen a country as determined and unified. Anderson, we have to take a quick break, but stick around, everybody. Moments like this, uh, in huge crises like this, especially overseas, where CNN has the resources to cover a story like this, we look to CNN because nobody does this story better than y'all. But I'm, I'm curious, as somebody who's covered a lot of wars, how do you avoid the quote-unquote fog of war when, when so much is going on, when there is so much misinformation being spread by the opposing forces, when um, so much of this fighting is a if not guerrilla style, it's certainly non-conventional in their resistance. How do you vet what you're getting? How do you make sure that you're not losing the truth in the fog of war here? Yeah, and, and I mean, the truth is, you know, the, the old saying is the uh, truth is the first victim in war, the first casualty of war. That, that is certainly the case. It, 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 it certainly helps to have an incredible organization like CNN with individuals like Clarissa Ward in Kiev and Alex Marquardt and, and Nick Payton Walsh in Odessa, and uh, you know Matthew Chance and all these people who are risking their lives. I mean, I'm in relative safety of, of Lviv, um, but to be risking their lives every single day to find the facts and and to be going out, seeing what's happening, and reporting back. And you know, Sarah Seidner's at the border and she sees things. She sees you know people going the opposite way, and she goes up and talks to them. And they're you know Americans or others who are deciding to fight in Ukraine and. It's just, it is old-fashioned reporting, um, and it is very brave what they are doing. And, and I think that's essential because there is so much misinformation. And, you know, we have resources, obviously, with, you know, we all see video on social media. You know, you can now, like, geo, geolocate video to try to ascertain exactly is it what the sender of this video is saying it is. Um, but we are devoting a huge amount of resources to, to covering this from as many countries as possible. And I think that's essential. I think it's, you know, in Aleppo, Aleppo and Syria, in which, you know, Russia was dropping barrel bombs, which just 
obliterate communities, they were able to get away with it because there weren't enough reporters on the ground. There were a lot of brave reporters and a lot of people got killed there as well reporting. Um, but, you know, Grozny in Chechnya, I, in 1995, I was too, I was like a freelance reporter, one man band. I was too scared to go to Grozny because, I mean, it was just so brutal. The, the world didn't really see what was going on there on a daily basis. And at least we are all seeing what is happening here. No one can say they don't know what's going on. No one can say that they don't know that Russia is lying to their own people, that, that they, you know, no one can say that they're not targeting civilians. We have seen this. It has been documented already. It's, um, it, is the, the, it is the thing that I think that drives everybody who wants to be here covering this is to bear witness to what is happening. Because there's nothing worse than people uh, dying in silence. The, as you say, life in Lviv is relatively peaceful based on the, uh, compared to the rest of the country. But there are 1.5 million Ukrainians have already fled across the border. 200,000 yeah. are internally displaced in and around Lviv. And 50,000 refugees pass through the train station there every day. What are they experiencing as they flee west? How, what yeah. kind of help are they getting right now? It's, I mean, it is hellish for people getting out. Uh, you know, if you are in Kharkiv, if you are in Kiev, uh, you know, just today, Clarissa War was at the train station in Kiev. And, you know, there are trains that come, the scheduling is hard. So people are just waiting around, thousands, tens of thousands of people are just waiting around for a train. And when it comes, you know, people rush the train. And, you know, most people are, you know, in Ukraine, people are together and unified and, and people want women and children to get on the train first, as it should be. And men have to stay behind. Many men come to bring their wives and their, or their children onto the trains. But these trains are packed. There, there's no, you know, there's too many people trying to get out. So there's no seating and you're, it can take hours and hours and then, you know, days even getting to the border uh, you know, if you have a car, you're in line for 24 hours or 48 hours, however long it takes, depending on what border crossing you're trying to make. You know, and you're, you're separated from your, your husband, your loved one who you're leaving behind. Sometimes it's mothers carrying sick kids. You know, I, was in, I told you I was at this cancer ward in Lviv where children with, with, I mean, really severe cancer, stomach cancer, brain cancer, who are being treated in basements in Kyiv under bombardment, their mom, their doctors are saying, look, you gotta take your child further west to, to actually get treatment. And there's no ambulances to take them. There's no you know, specialized care vehicles taking these kids. It's mothers carrying their kids with really severe cancers uh, on a packed train where they have to just hold on to them and stand for hours and hours and then they get to a hospital in Lviv and there's still not enough supplies for them. And then they have to try to get into Poland where, where they can get better care. So it's, I mean, it is just, it's, a, it's just awful. It's just awful. Everybody has a story. Every family has been divided. There is so much loss and it's only going to get worse as this goes on. Um, on Friday, CNN stopped broadcasting from Russia. What does that mean practically? I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I've, I've sort of been so focused on here, but you know, I think there's a lot of news organizations which are now trying to figure out what does this actually mean. The Russian Parliament, the Duma, passed this law uh, outlawing. It's a law by, you know, that Vladimir Putin put through, uh, basically outlawing actual reporting 
on the war. You, you know, they don't call the war a war there. They don't call the invasion an invasion. They say that they are not targeting or killing civilians. Um, so any actual factual reporting of it from our reading so far of this law, it seems like that can be labeled as fake reporting and therefore you can be targeted and punished and a reporter can be jailed and for, for many years. So at this point, as far as I know that, you know, a lot of news organizations have stopped reporting. I think the Washington Post has stopped putting the bylines, their, their reporters' names on articles. I think everybody right now is trying to assess what this actually means and see where this kind of goes. But it, it's certainly an indication of Vladimir Putin's attempt to control information. And, um, you know, I saw this video of this little old lady on the streets in Russia at a protest. And she, I mean, she couldn't have been more than five feet tall, she was in her 80s. She was. She held up two handmade signs protesting the war, and she was whisked off the streets and arrested by riot Russian riot police. And to me, it was the most incredible image because I thought this, you know, Vladimir Putin, who likes to appear, you know, half naked riding around on a horse or on a, you know, in his black belt doing judo as a tough guy, is scared of an 80-something-year-old woman who is simply standing on a street holding up a sign protesting a war. To me, this kind of a law, it's, it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of fear. Um, and it's a sign of, of you know, the reality of, of the disinformation campaign that Russia wages. We have to take a break. When we come back, I'll ask Anderson about the responsibility of being a witness to war. Last night, you said it's necessary to be a witness to what's going on in Ukraine. So much of it is disturbing and traumatic, but of course, that's the story that's happening. That's the truth. How do you make the editorial decisions of what to show people of this war? Because it's important not to romanticize war. It's also mm. important not to offend the dignity of those who have suffered. How do, how do you make the decision about what to, what to give to us? Yeah, look, I mean, there, there, I mean, there are things one sees in wars that that you don't put on television. I mean, um, you know, any kind of description of, of depravity you can imagine ha happens, and and that's not necessarily something people want to see or that it's appropriate to put on television. But I think that it is important not to sanitize everything so that it just seems like some, you know just some film or some movie or, or you've seen worse in movies and, and it just doesn't to, to suck the, the reality out of it. And, and I think it's a, it's a fine line and, and, you know, we have a lot of people looking at stuff and I tend to believe that it's, it's important to see what is happening. It's, I know it's hard to look at and after a while, maybe it all starts to look the same. Um, there are people, good, decent people who, or just living their lives and have had their lives completely ripped apart. You know, the people who are fleeing, they're now labeled, they're now refugees, but they're not refugees. They're people just like you and I, and some of them are from Africa and some of them are from India and some of them are from Ukraine and they're fleeing and their lives are completely destroyed and uprooted and their families divided. And I think it's important to see all that and to, to 
feel what it is like to imagine yourself in their shoes, to have empathy and walk in their shoes. And, and for that, I think you have to see some of what is going on and you have to hear, you know, you have to hear it and, and you have to see it. And, and, and it's hard sometimes to look at it and, but, but to look away to me, um, it's just not an option. I, I just believe that I've seen a lot of places where people just disappear, where their bodies literally disintegrate into the sand or into the earth. And there's no photograph of them that their family has. And there's no, there's no marker for them of where they died. And I think there, there's, it's a terrible thing to be slaughtered in a war, but to be eviscerated and not have anybody even notice your passing is particularly haunting to me. And I believe in bearing witness to the, the, the dignity of people here, and also the indignity that is being done to people here. What should we, what should the world be paying attention to in the weeks ahead? Um, is there a possibility of negotiations? Uh, is, it, is it these evacuation corridors? What, what is the story you've got your eye out for? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, there, there have been three meetings now between uh, Ukrainian officials and, and Russian officials in, in Belarus. Um, not much has come out, come out of it. Um, I think, you know, I've talked to Ukrainian officials who say, look, you know, they won't say they trust the people that they're talking to. Vladimir Putin is the one who ends up making the decisions. They believe that there may be some places that they can come to some sort of agreement on, but that hasn't happened yet in three meetings. And these, this talk of humanitarian corridors, I mean, it, it is a long way from actually happening. The, the few times it's been set up for a very limited window in very limited places, it has not lasted long. Ukrainian officials end up blaming the Russians for violating it. Russians then say, oh, no, it was Ukrainian, Ukrainian military who did. So that has not really worked. Uh, Russia is now saying, oh, you can have a humanitarian corridor to go to back to go into Belarus and Russia. But there's there's very few Ukrainians who are really wanting to flee into Russia or flee into Belarus when it's Russia, which is attacking uh, Ukraine and attacking it also from Belarus. So there's, there's got to be some sort of intermediary, like the, the international community of the Red Cross, which does this kind of thing. And there's got to be the will on both sides to create humanitarian corridors to get people out and to get supplies in. Because soon, you know, they're going to, cities are going to start running out of food and running out of medicine and, you know, this is the Russian campaign. It is it, the surgical strike that they were probably hoping for didn't happen. And now it seems like they are going to have maximum damage to break the will of the Ukrainian people. And whether or not that will happen, I, I don't know. But I do, I do believe that, yeah, I don't, I mean, nobody can say what will happen, but, but I, I certainly think the the example that Ukrainians have shown thus far of the dis, the willingness to stand up and fight and resist it it is just extraordinary to witness and it's it is it's a privilege and kind of an honor to to be here and be able to you know you know when people it really moves me when people say goodbye to you they the official greeting in the, among soldiers and, and now even among civilians is, you know, glory to Ukraine. And then the answer to that is glory to the heroes. And I think there's something so moving in that. Um, and that, is, that sort of, to me, embodies that sort of 
that spirit that people have here that is not just about their own individual pain and their own individual heartbreak, that it's they're part of something bigger. And I was at a place today where moms whose kids were at the front, whose husbands were at the front were packing supplies and you know, literally hand weaving camouflage netting for Ukrainian tanks and, and, and artillery pieces. And you know, they're crying on the one hand because their loved one is gone and they feel like this is how they can contribute. And um, it's just, it's an extraordinary thing to witness. Anderson, thank you for being with us. And thank you for the reporting you're doing and, of course, all your colleagues on the front for showing us the, the barbarism of this invasion and the dignity of the Ukrainians' courageous response. Anderson Cooper reporting from Ukraine, everybody. Up next, Sutton Foster. Tonight is a two-time Tony Award-winning actor, singer, and dancer who now stars in The Music Man on Broadway. Please welcome back to The Late Show, Sutton Foster. Thank you so much for being on here. I just absolutely... I don't know if you saw what I said on the show after I saw your show a couple weeks ago. Music Man is such a delight. It is absolutely a medicine for the soul, especially in dark times. Right. It is so bright, there's no way not to leave it a little bit happier. I think if everyone in America went and saw it with somebody they didn't like, we'd (laughs) like each other a little bit more. It is one of the most joyful most loving, wonderful things I've ever been a part of, especially after these last couple years, and especially now during this time of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. It is um, truly a tonic for the soul and the heart. I love every single moment that I get to do it. I feel so lucky. <laughs> and part of Broadway's Broad- reopening. Yes. And the Winter Garden's such a great theater. Oh, it's in- unbelievable. You know, uh, the last... Um, year and a half, two years, has been uh, devastating to our industry. Mm-hmm. And for theater to be back and to be able to... I mean, there's nothing like performing live. There's mm-hmm. nothing like sharing this, you know, experience with a live audience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you and Hugh Jackman. Yeah! He is fantastic as He's Harold the best. Hill. He's the best. And, uh... <laughs> I, this, is a, this is a Broadway stage, uh, originally, and I have a bunch of rituals I do before I come out here every night. Do you have any rituals before... Actually, yeah, Hugh and I do. Um, so he comes to visit uh, in my dressing room, and we have a uh, carpet chat where we, I have things to actually sit on, but for some reason we both end up on the floor. Which this is before your before wardrobe. Before the show, yes, yeah, before yeah. the wardrobe. And we have, yeah. like, coffee and smoothies and stuff. And then we thought that maybe we should start a podcast called Carpet Chat with Hugh and Sutton. That's not sure. that very exciting. But, you know, no. maybe tune in and might learn something. Sure. <laughs> about, about area rugs. About area else. rugs and now, how tidy they are. This is your first are. time doing Broadway since you became a mom. Yeah. Has that changed? I have how a five-year-old little human, a little girl. She just turned five this weekend. Um, yeah, happy we had, bir- happy, happy birthday. birthday, Emily. Happy birthday. Oh, she's the best. Has yeah. she seen the show? She did. She came, um, she saw it once before we opened because she wanted, she was invited to opening night, but then she wanted to decide if she liked it enough to come to opening, which she did. And when she came to opening night, I asked my husband, I said, I said, how did she do? How did, did she applaud? Did she, like, respond? Because he, the response in the theater is incandescent. The audience is on the audience is going crazy. Yeah. They love it. And he said, oh, well, no, she clapped when you came out and took your bow, but she didn't really clap or anything. And I asked her, I said, you didn't clap? You didn't clap? And she said, well, I need time. 
I need time to, to, to process. I'm not going to conform to the well, masses and just do what everyone else is doing. So I respect is, that. That is that is a tough. Yeah. That is a tough critic. T tough. But fair. <laughs> but fair. <laughs> now you you work with a, a ton of incredible young artists in this show. The the town yes, of, of River City. Yes, there's 21 Broadway debuts. That's what I heard. Which what is, is it like to it's see incredible. to be? Because you know you've done so many Broadway shows. Two-time Tony Award winner. What's it like to see these young people trod the boards on Broadway for the first time? It's inspired. We have ten-year-olds to veterans, I should say. But I, it is, it's remarkable. They are incredible, hardworking, full of joy, incredible human beings, and we just, you know, I think Hugh and I both, you know, we we really, and there's something, nothing like working with kids too. It's like it brings out the best in everybody, mm -hmm. and everyone really wants to be their best self because they want to say, hey. You know, this is how it can be, and so because <laughs> it isn't do always they ask for that advice way. Or anything? They do. One of the girls comes and asks me advice about like what she should wear to opening or you know representation, and I'm like, I don't know. Well, kid, I don't know. You know, I'm just <laughs> I try to. Like... Who was that for you? Was there somebody of say your stature when you were younger that you went to oh, and said, well, Hey, I, I want I some had, advice, or gave you some good my, advice? I had my high school. My I had two favorite high school teachers. So my high school drama teacher, Mr. Bodick, who actually passed away recently, but he saw me in every single show and he was, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without him. And then my high school speech and debate teacher, Mrs. Clark. Is that who this is? Yes, that's who this is. She I was actually came what and saw the was. show. Tell, tell, I'll show the photo after you tell so the story. So she came and saw the show and she was like, so excited. And then she said, can I meet my crush? And I said, Hugh Jackman. And she goes, yes, I would just love it. And I'm like, well, because of COVID, you know, we're not allowed to have people backstage. But Hugh Jackman walked out of the stage door and, and screamed, Mrs. Harriet Clark. And she screamed like a fangirl, and they took a picture, and so that's Mrs. Clark with Hugh, with her crush. <laughs> and I came out after to see her. I came out after to see her, and she had already left. <laughs> She's got excellent timing. <laughs> you also, you also, um, you also talk about. Um, we talked about crocheting the last time you were here and, yeah. and your own craft work and everything. Yeah. Now you've written a book about it called How Crafting Saved My Life. Yes. There you go. There you go. It's a Hooked. Hooked. How Crafting Saved My Life. How did crafting save your life, Sutton Foster? Well, it's a collection of essays about different things that I've made throughout my life and sort of what was happening during the time. The baby blanket while I was waiting for my daughter to be born. Um, the, I started cross-stitching. I have, you know, the blanket I was making when I was going through a divorce. So, like, things like that. So there's, there's like sort of... i that blanket. <laughs> it was filled with a lot of energy. But um, a lot of angst and some tears. But, uh, yeah, so it's sort of... It's, it's a way, it was a way for me to kind of tell my story um, with the things that that will live on, you know, hopefully beyond me. Well, you you seem to mark important moments uh, with with your crafting. I, I, do. I have been told that you are marking this evening. I am. You no, know, being I have on, no idea what this is, being but I've been told to ask you about this. Is a moment for me, and so I made you a little something, a, and I made it while I was in the dressing room at the Music Man. So this is for you. Okay. Yep. So, uh, well, it's it's a toilet paper roll cover. So, so. Oh, oh, hold on. So. It's a mug. It's a mug. It's a crocheted mug. But so. <laughs> toilet paper. So it's handy. Where you know? was this two years ago when I needed to hide my toilet paper? <laughs> 
Exactly. Oh, so that's you your so emergency much. role. This is lovely. No problem. Thank you. <laughs> the, 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 the musical, my friends, is The Music Man on Broadway at the Winter Garden Theater. Go see it. This has been The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. If you're enjoying The Late Show Pod Show, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Watch The Late Show with Stephen Colbert weeknights at 11.35, 10.35 Central on CBS and Paramount+. And for more exclusive Late Show content, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube.